0: Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff, or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at bmb21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID 19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Really excited for my guest today, Chris Seifel, uh, founder and CEO of Seifel Capital Management. Amazing substack, amazing new website. Um, I've learned a ton just reading his Twitter. Um, we'll get into all that, that. But first, Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. And uh, I don't want to interrupt you, you. know, Keep going. The accolades are great.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Cool. So I think we could start off by talking about your background a little bit, because I think it's interesting, some of the names and research you're doing now, uh, which kind of gets more into some like kind of tech stuff that people would think is like some frothy multiples don't necessarily have the free cash flow that probably like more traditional value investors would be used to. And I I know you kind of come from like a bit of a private equity background being used to look at cash flows from mortgages and things like that. So I'd love to hear kind of like how you started off and how you got to where you are and kind of some of the things that changed in terms of your uh, investment growth in between.
1: So I was a finance and economics double major uh, in college. So that's where it all kind of started, right? And I think anyone that does study those topics, uh, they do have a very fundamental rooted value-based background, right? Because that's what we were taught. You know, it's the DCF is the king of valuation uh, Warren Buffett is our idol and it's the same for everybody. Right. And I think, you know, not to uh, go down a rabbit hole here, but I think it's part of the reason why generating alpha is so difficult in the public markets these days is because everyone's kind of thinking the same. They're all trained the same. Um, so they all think the same way, you know, and I think it's hard when everyone's, you know, coming up with the same ideas, investing in the same companies, but that was my background academically. And then I went down the whole banking route. And then I made my way to a family office uh, in 2016. And we were primarily investing in the long-term care space. So skilled nursing, assisted living, independent living. And we were acquiring both the operating and property companies. So yes, I got a A very good background in real estate, but really at the heart of the matter, right, was the operating company because that would then determine how much rent could be paid to the property company, which then valued the entire business, right? So one of my jobs and responsibilities while there, you know, I was there for about three years. Uh, When I became senior associate, I was tasked with rebuilding the template operating model for all of our entities, right? And so the key is matrix integrity, right? So you wanted to have the same model for everything. So it had to be very dynamic, it had to be able to account for the different asset types, it would be able to account for uh, the different rate categories that would be incurred based off of the uh, government programs that were, uh, that would be reimbursing the different patients. So I got a very good and in-depth background in building operating models. And the the model I had to build was, it was overkill. It was 17,000 lines long. Uh, But, you know, we were modeling everything down to the individual components of the Medicare and Medicaid rates. So it was just, it was as granular as you could get. But it gave me, you know, I think two things. One, an appreciation for the operating side, you know, because operations are everything. And so I think that is helpful in my framework for public markets because, I'm not looking at the numbers really until later in my process. Uh, it's really very much trying to understand the story. And that was uh, that was how I was taught in the private equity space. And, and then, you know, secondarily too, it's like you mentioned, it's all about the cash flows because so we had two partners, right? And it was mostly all of their capital that was going into either the acquisitions we were doing or any investments uh, from the CapEx side. And so we were always acutely focused on the equity check, right? And so the return on their invested capital was the most important thing. So we were really looking at free cash flow. What would really be spit off from each of these entities? So that was my background. You're right. Truly fundamental value-based background. Now I do take that same approach to the public markets. I try to get as... Really, as good of an understanding as I possibly can, and take an owner's mindset to the analysis. But my interests, and and part of the reason why I left you, my interests are on the technology side and kind of the cutting edge and and what is happening next in the world and what's really driving the world forward. Those companies, at least in today's environment, happen to be, they, they happen to have higher multiples than they have had in the past. Well, we can just put it that way. And so when you have a company that's growing at let's say 85% revenue year over year, you can't use a DCF because let's, let's talk about a couple of different ways, right? You know, a DCF is usually going to be a five year projection period. Okay. And that, that's probably the most I could even reasonably say that I could project a company, right? You know, I, I've how I told it to, but one of the things that I always say is, you know, I don't, I can't tell you what my bank account is going to look like in six months so how am I going to tell you what a multi-billion-dollar company is going to look like in five years? It's very difficult, right? Like you're looking at it more directionally. But if for an 85% revenue-growing company in five years, they're going to still be growing, hopefully, you know, at 30, 40, whatever it may be percent. So if you tried to then do a terminal value calculation off of uh, that growth rate, you're going to get either one a number that makes no sense or an error or you're going to drastically undervalue the company and its opportunities. So I was able to take just a different approach and I can get into it if you want um, to value these companies. But really, like I mentioned, it's all about understanding the story. And so, you know, I can talk about how I kind of come up with my ideas if you want, but that's how I went from being a very much a value based, really deep fundamental uh, investor, having that framework to more, quote unquote, on the growth side, because really, at the end of the day, there's no difference between growth and value. It's all just trying to figure out what companies are valued today um, in the market, less than what you think it's really worth. And that's just a distinction without a difference, I think, for value versus growth.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I totally understand that a DCF on like a five to 10 year period is going to be a waste of time. When you're talking about companies that have margins and kind of top line growth that are changing, you know, day to day, week to week. Um, So yeah, I'd love to hear some of your process around how you think about determining value for these companies. I mean, I I definitely have heard a lot of stuff about LTV to CAC, uh, kind of what their marketing spend is in terms of getting incremental dollars in the door. Um, What has been useful to you for thinking about like a CrowdStrike or kind of other names um, you've looked at in terms of future value? Sure.
1: So part of what I do is try to Build out like a normalized earnings model, if you will, and what that requires is having a a very strong understanding of not only the gross margin structure but also their operating leverage right like what is the operating expense structure going to look like at the end of the day and then of course you know you can you can intuit from that what free cash flow should look like um, from a margin perspective uh, but you know a company like crowdstrike you're already seeing kind of the the abilities and the scale of that business. So that that's the way that I approach the more fundamental side of valuation framework. So it's not a true DCF, but it is an earnings model with which is where I think the company can go. But I also do use certain multiples to see does this make sense, right? So if I think that, and I don't really use sales multiples, right? So a couple things on that. Uh, I see. On Twitter, way too often. And, and I try not to comment on it. I try not to let it frustrate me, uh, but I'm a stickler for details. And I see the price to sales ratio thrown out a lot. And I actually did a thread about it. Uh, the price to sales ratio is inherently flawed because you're mixing and matching the capital structure, right? So uh, price or market cap is what's available only to equity holders, but sales are available to all stakeholders, right? So there's an essential mismatch. It should be enterprise value to sales. But I don't use enterprise value to sales because any company can grow sales, right? If you you invest, you know, 200% of your revenue into R&D and sales, then sales and marketing spend, I should say, then yeah, you can grow your top line, right? But really what's the key is, what is their gross margin profile looking like? And then also you can... Do a couple different calculations that look at that that utilize their growth rates, and then also if it is free cash flow positive, I do like price to free cash flow, levered free cash flow. So I'm looking at enterprise value to gross profits, uh, depending on the where the company is in their life cycle, and I'm looking at price to free cash flow. Uh, and different stabilized uh, metrics that I think the company could be valued at on a very conservative basis, right? Like, I'm going to look at maybe a 20x uh, price to free cash flow, which would be like a 5% yield, which makes which makes sense, I think. Uh, and then, you know, it, once the company with my earnings model, I'll look at what would a PE of, say, 25 be, which is, I think, really where the, the market's been going, especially in a lower rate environment. So, I really try to bring everything back to reality as much as possible and not get caught and lost in the in the growth side of things, uh, but at the same time too, you know like the runway is very important, so it's all about building a mosaic you know it's it's all about having multiple data points that can help you really understand and conceptualize a story
0: and and that that's just kind of the overall approach that makes sense, yeah, I think what you said about the the runway is kind of the key question I sometimes think about. Um, and, and you know, on the point of many investors now, kind of are looking at sales multiples and trying to you know make price targets off that. I've definitely seen that on Twitter, and I'm like, same same deal with you know, kind of try to stay quiet. You um, <laughs> let's stay, go ahead. No, it's, it's, it's true. I
1: mean, you know, one thing I've learned is, you know, one, you got to pick your battles. And and two, I've been a lot more productive since I've been able to uh, really uh, ramp down the Twitter usage. So it, yes. it's mutually beneficial to not comment on those posts.
0: Yeah. For every bit of gold you find on Twitter, there's definitely like 10 or 12 kind of pieces of, of bad things you have to wade through. Um, on the price of free cash flow, like I think I was trying to kind of think about this with CrowdStrike last night. So I mean, I think it's super impressive. They've been free cash flow positive for five straight quarters and it's like 33% free cash flow margins now. Yep. So I was thinking like, you know, they're whatever, 250 million on a yearly basis are moving towards that this year. Yeah. If they get to a billion, it's still, you know, $40 billion market cap. So you're looking at a two and a half percent yield, but like ultimately you have to kind of extend the timeline and think like, what could this company be? And, and you know, how quickly can you get there? when you were talking about runway like you know, how many years are you thinking about in the future and then how do you think about like you know what's actually going to drive free cash flow going forward so it's it's definitely company specific
1: on the drivers of free cash flow right so every thesis or every company i analyze it comes down to let's call it one to four max usually one to three critical factors that drive the thesis and something i learned recently uh, thankful to I'm not gonna call anyone out, but someone that's really helped me a lot in terms of my analytical rigor and capabilities, uh, making sure that every one of those critical factors has a quantitatively verifiable uh, component to it. You can think about it as milestones, right? As objective milestones that you can measure the company by, because like I mentioned, I take an owner's perspective to investing, which implies very long-term, but there are a few issues there right one is that if you just kind of shut your eyes and put your money in a company and it goes down 50 percent and then it's going to zero you know that that's an issue right so there's i think that and dennis hong said this uh, from Shaw Spring. you know the the long term is really the accumulation of a lot of short-term accountability decisions and so that's what the milestones are for me it's really tracking is the company still on track uh, for what I believe is the real drivers of their value. So it, it's hard to say, you know, it's going to be a five-year timeline or a 10-year timeline. But what I'm doing along the way is I have my milestones and objectives. And for those same critical factors, I'm updating it. And I'm saying, okay, you know, if they grew, if they grew their, you know, their, the usage of their modules, right, let's talk about CrowdStrike. If 61% of their customers are using four plus modules this quarter, and that's been accelerating consistently quarter over quarter, you have 44% of their customers using five plus modules and 22% using six plus, which is the first time they reported uh, how many customers are using six plus modules. That uh, that framework is something I can use to say, okay, this company is still tracking to where I think it needs to go, right? So that's something that I do uh, in, in terms of the timelines. Now, there's also other kind of more thematic drivers, I think, for every company as well. One of them for CrowdStrike is actually artificial intelligence because the heart and the source of their competitive advantage is their threat graph, which is essentially just a data lake uh, that, is, that collates all of the data points from each of their customers and then feeds that into their algorithm. And that is then able to update and in real time, uh, protect customers because it's, it's using behavior-based analytics, right? So, my and I can get into my thesis if you want. You want me to just dive right into CrowdStrike or yeah. should we hold off?
0: I, I definitely want to go there, but I would say before we get there, like I kind of would like to double click on what you were saying about runway and checking in, whether it's on a quarterly, monthly, whatever basis. Because I feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of my portfolio, it's it's low turnover. I hold it, and I check in every quarter. Or if I see they talked at a conference, I'll try to read this the transcript. Yeah, I, I think the tricky thing can be trying to correlate what management is saying with your thesis. So I, I'd love to know if there's anything you found helpful, whether it's a Crown Strike or other names, in terms of the company reported. Did my thesis get stronger? Did it get weaker? What changed? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's.
1: I would say it's tough, and it's and it's pretty easy at the same time, right? Because the quantitatively verifiable metrics that I'm looking for, those can't be fudged, right? Now, if they stop reporting those metrics and they've been reporting them for a while, well, that, that's a red flag, right? So that's something you can look for. And of course, you know, like you, I'm I'm making sure that I'm reading every single uh, quarterly earnings call transcript. And for the companies in my portfolio, I'm listening as well because I think tone is important. But, uh, you know, I'm reading through and me through the transcripts. You're right, like whenever there is a... Uh, Whenever they're speaking at a conference or they're doing a presentation, I will definitely at least, I'll read the transcript as well, or I'll look at the presentation, et cetera, et cetera. And everything, once again, is just, it's all data points. So if you have a company that you have your one to three critical factors, and there are other things they're talking about, you know, they can be positive or negative, but you have to always ask yourself, what is the heart of the matter? What is the essence of this company? Because, you know, with all these data points and the proliferation of data, right, we talk about, you know, data transformation, the big issue there is that your signal to noise ratio is getting a lot lower, meaning that there's a lot more noise and signal. And it's the same thing for companies. You need to stay focused on what really drives the company's value and their stock price. And it's, you know, those one to three things. Everything else is really just kind of window dressing. You know, in my opinion, because, you know, listen, like if, let's say for instance, right, you know, CrowdStrike, their let's say their revenue decelerated to 70%, for, just as an example. There are so many drivers of revenue that that fact alone doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. But if you stick to, like I said, you know, or let's even talk about gross margin, because we can use that as an example for my modules, if gross margin, if that percentage decelerates to 70%, let's say, from where it is right now at 76%, I think, on a non-GAAP basis, well, why is that? It's going to have to be because they're selling less modules to their customers because after the first module, every module sold after that is pure margin. So there, you can really get down to the heart of matter just by focusing on those few things and not getting lost in in all of the other details because... In reality, especially as a guy just operating by myself, I need to maximize the ROI on my time spent. So if I know the things that I'm looking for and what's really going to matter, and I focus on that only, then I'm able to be a more effective, let's call it, analyst, uh, portfolio manager, etc. So yeah, you know, I definitely stay up to date on all of the news and, and everything the company's saying, but I stay laser focused on what matters.
0: Definitely. I think with signal to noise too, I think one huge introduction of noise is drawdowns and, and they happen. And <laughs> you, you, I thought you had some really interesting commentary on Brandon Balo's podcast about risk management and kind of maximum loss rules. Um, yep. Yeah. I, I'd love to talk about kind of how you react to, to drawdowns and uh, specifically around, I think when they happen, you hear the bears really come out in full force and start questioning, you know, names you own. For me, like what comes to mind is I remember you know, a couple years ago, Facebook, and Apple, you know, both went down So that were 10 times earnings was like 20 times EBITDA for Facebook. And it's difficult to imagine that could still be true. Um, but at the time, I mean, everybody was questioning whether the growth could continue. Right. Um, and in the moment, it's very hard, like not to give the bears, you know, full listening and think, you know, they could be right here. So what's your experience been like in drawdowns? Do you have any good strategies for dealing with them?
1: Sure. So i think to as a preface right i'm still very nascent in my uh, portfolio management trading career right you know i just started really actively managing the portfolio in june of this year Uh, so really haven't experienced you know i didn't experience march i i experienced it from the sidelines which is very different right because when you have true skin in the game and you're actually managing a book the psychological difference between that and say a paper account is night and day. It's, it's not even close. And then take that a step further, right? If you're managing other people's money, then that is a whole different world by itself. But, you know, I have experienced drawdowns in names that I own. And so how do, how do I react to that? Right. You know, I started off uh, being very stubborn. You know, I knew the rules cause I followed the canceling methodology and, and I know the rules that I should be following. But you know, I told myself, no, it's going to come right back. And, and very rarely does does it actually come right back. So I put my foot in the ground and I, I really disciplined myself and said, you know, listen, you have these rules for a reason, to remove the subjectivity and emotion from the process and be objective about the, your decision making, right? So I can talk about, you know, why I implement, uh, maximum wash rules. So the maximum wash rule that Bill O'Neill who, uh, developed, founded, uh, the Slim methodology, he recommends like seven to 8%. And so I think it really depends on the market, you know, the volatility, the name itself, but let's just call it 8% just for ease. Right. Why, why do I do that? Right. Cause it, it's really hard, especially in volatile markets to, to, you know, hang on to a stock with a 8% stop loss and, and not be stopped out. But the reason is very simple. You know, you always, just like in anything in life, I think you want to put the odds in your favor. And so what having a stop loss does for you is it makes your return profile asymmetric, where you just have positive skew. So you're not going to have those left tail events really happening, aside from gap risk, Right. But you're not going to be incurring 30% drawdowns uh, if, it's, you know, if you have the 8% stop loss. Now, it's easier for somebody who's managing a smaller portfolio to be very nimble, right? So if, if I have an 8% stop loss, it goes to 8%, I get stopped out. It goes down to 10 it goes back up to 8, 8%, 8% you know, of the loss from my original purchase price. I can buy back there and it's not very difficult. And, you know, that's kind of what you want to do or you want to try to do, uh, especially if you have high conviction in a name. But that's really kind of why, you know, I have that maximum uh, loss rule. But the other thing when it comes to drawdowns is this. Did you do the research yourself? Have you done all of the true research that allows you to have high conviction in a name? If not, if you've gotten the idea from somebody else, you you saw it on Twitter, you know, you like its growth, but you haven't dug into the company and really understand it. I would bet, I would bet pretty good money that you are getting out of that name and, and you're done. Because you don't really understand the business. You are not taking that owner's mindset. Now, for me, I think it's a little bit different. I have rules. I'll get out of 8%. But what's the difference for me is that I have high conviction in the name. So once it comes back to that point I got stopped out at, I'll get back in if you know it's showing that signs of strength, right? So that's I think the big difference. You have to have conviction in your names, you have to do your own homework. Uh, and that's really the only way that you can really withstand any volatility in a stock that you or a company that you have high conviction in.
0: Totally makes sense. Uh, you mentioned cancelim a, a few times while you're talking about that. The first time I'd actually heard about that was when you were on Value Hive. So you okay. know, it'd be great if you could deep dive. What is cancelim and why has it been useful to you? Sure. So cancelim, like I mentioned, is a investing framework. It's a system
1: uh, that was developed by Bill O'Neill. God. Like, 50, 56 years ago, something like that. Uh, and, and over time, uh, he's just continued to, uh, I'd say refine it, but really prove the system works. And he, he studied like over 100 years of the best market performers and really just identified the seven traits that each of them had. So CAN SLIM is an acronym for the seven traits I mentioned. So the first one to see is the current EPS growth and you include sales there as well. And so what you want to see is the most recent, you know, two, three, four uh, latest quarters showing high EPS and sales growth year over year. Ideally, you also want to see acceleration. For the A, that's annual EPS growth. So over the past three to five years, you want to see similar... And so uh, for the C it's like greater than 25 or 30% you want to look for is usually uh, what the you know biggest market leaders uh, have experienced or have shown rather before their big runs for the a, it's very similar. It's like 25, 30% you want to see, but on a year on a, like a Kager basis on the past three to five years for N it stands for, you know, new products, new services, uh, new highs, new management, uh, something new along those lines are usually uh what you see when a when a stock really accelerates and takes off and is a leader uh the s is supply and demand so you know i i think it goes without saying in the short term right you know supply and demand is really the main driver of returns uh and so what you want to look for when it comes to supply and demand is are things like accumulation distribution you know are our institutions coming in and buying the stock uh, you want to look for the up down ratios above one which an up down ratio is you take the, you know, total volume on up days and divide it by total volume down days. And that kind of shows you like where their strength, if their strength in the stock. Uh, and then, you know, you want to look for like increasing funds, uh, you know, coming into the name or more funds taking positions in the, in the stock and accumulating more shares, things like that, that, that shows that there's a lot of demand for the stock. And, you know, what's important there is, so for someone like me, right, or for for a retail investor, you know and this is a very much a Peter Lynch type of uh, thought process, you want to find, or even like the Chris Meyer Hunderbagger framework, you want to find the stock before it's really discovered, you know, before the institutions come in, because that provides a big boost once they do. And I don't disagree with that thought process at all. And, and it works, I think, great for someone that is just managing their own money and, and is looking to generate the highest amount of returns. But what institutional backing does is it's, it's a risk management framework. So if a stock is you know, getting hit a bit, if you don't have the funds in there and the institutions in there, they, the stock can't be supported if it's, if it's going down. But if there are funds and institutions in the name and a stock is getting beat up a little bit, they're going to be there to support the stock. So you're not going to see as big of drawdowns or the volatility of the drawdowns that you would without that backing. So that's supply and demand. Uh, The L is leader versus laggard. So you want to find stocks that are in the leading industry groups, uh, which I think it's like 50% of the stock's return is related to their industry group or something along those lines. Uh, You want to see the stock have a high relative strength. So relative strength being, you know, how has that stock performed versus the rest of the, you know, the rest of the companies in the index you want to see something above an 80. So the 80% uh, threshold, if you will. Uh, and, you know, I, I really look for companies in like the 95 plus percent, you know, I think that's really, that's really constructive. And what you want to kind of look for is a company that's making new highs. So, you know, they're up into the right and the relative strength line is going in the same direction because that shows strength and that everyone's coming in and name to uh, provide buying pressure. I think the last thing, you know, when it comes to, the leaders versus laggards is and this is a good example actually of crowdstrike recently so it, it broke out of a it broke out of a base i forget a couple of weeks ago maybe and on the breakout it was on significantly higher volume like 250% of their you know average volume and so that shows that institutions are coming in and buying the name and that's what you really want to see and that that will kind of give you support to for the next let's say 20% higher Uh, so that's uh, I institutions, right? And so I kind of mentioned, uh, you want to look for companies that have the institutional fund sponsorship, but specifically when it comes to the, I, you want to see that the, that the institutions and funds in the name are actually some of the best performing funds. So for instance, right, you know, CrowdStrike, uh, CrowdStrike, um, one of their, one of the shareholders is the Fidelity Contra fund. Uh, so Will Danoff, right? And so he has something like, Three hundred thirty thousand shares, and he's been increasing that over the past couple of quarters. So a high quality fund is buying the name that produces great returns. That's a pretty good indicator that you're in a quality name as well. And then M is simple; it's the market, right? So the market really can kind of have three states when it comes to uh, you know investors' business daily, which is the which is the publication that O'Neill started. And M is simply, is it a confirmed uptrend, is it an uptrend under pressure, or is it a sell-off, basically? And, um, you know, right now we're in a market uptrend, so checks the box.
0: Awesome, yeah. We could go all day on this, but I, I definitely yeah. have follow-ups on I and M. So on yeah. the institutional support one, you know, I, I feel like I've been occasionally a small-cap investor sometimes to my benefit, sometimes to my detriment. And I, with small caps, like, I feel like it's so common to see stocks where like one analyst follows them or sometimes even the earnings call just ends and there, there are no follow-ups. Um, and if you listen to someone like an Ian Castle or like, you know, you mentioned yeah. Meyer in the 100 Bagger book, I, I feel like sometimes you'll hear, you know, like the best big companies start super small. Um, have you, like, do you have any reservations with getting into small caps because they're not going to have that institutional support? So once again, I think it's what perspective? Uh,
1: from a personal perspective, I personally would not. And and there's a simple reason for that, which is just, I practice how I play. So, you know, one day, right, let me just get rid of this notification. One day, I'm gonna be managing money. And why would I wanna practice managing my own money in a way that I wouldn't be doing it for clients? That doesn't make any sense, right? Because I'm gonna have all my own capital in the fund anyways. So. I might as well start right now today utilizing the portfolio management frameworks that I believe generates the best risk adjusted returns. So I personally would not, if I was talking to somebody else that didn't care about that, they had no aspirations to manage money. I would tell them, listen, you know, of course, you know, like the monster energy, which God, what, what was the return? Like 80 something thousand percent over 20 years. And uh, I forget what the the other company was I was looking at, that had like a 40,000% increase over 20 years. It happens, but you're also playing against the odds, right? So I was trying to think about this this question the other day. It's, you know, if I had to put my, company, my equity into one stock over 20 years, right, what would it be? I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue because, you know, I have a 30% return threshold, Uh, on an IRR basis for for my stocks, right? A very high threshold because I run a concentrated portfolio. And over 20 years, if a company is performing well, you're going to run into a base rate problem, into, into a law of large numbers issue, where a company that grows to $500 million, it's a lot harder for that company to double than a company that's at $30 billion, right? So. You know, that's why it's a very difficult question for me. But when it comes to small caps, back to your question, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to play that game. Um, But I think you need to be always aware of the risks. And I think that it's very important to have a risk management framework in place. So if you're going to, this is what what I would do. I'm not providing any stock advice, but, you know, if you want to, implement, you know, the Taleb, you know, anti-fragile barbell framework. And that's, you know, that's fine, right? Just have a couple, like, like have a venture capital-ish portion of your portfolio uh, that if you hit it, then you're going to hit pretty big. But, you know, I think the number one thing in investing is capital preservation. You know, don't lose money. Like Buffett says it, right? Rule number one is, you know, don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So, you know that that would be the one thing I would tell people to think about. You know, I have nothing against it, but how is your risk management? You know, is is that appropriate?
0: Totally makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned Danoff with uh, CrowdStrike. I mean, I think when he was on Masters of Business, I was like among my favorite podcasts of the year. Is there any other kind of equity investors you look to be alongside, or like kind of people you really respect who you're you're looking at what their funds are doing?
1: Yeah, so you know, I do dig through 13Fs uh, just to follow certain people, and and there are. And there are hedge fund managers, which I won't I won't name just, you know, so I don't I don't want to have them associated with me in case that you know my returns go to hell. But there are definitely guys that I look at kind of and follow what they're doing, but it's not really what stocks they're holding that I'm looking at. I really want to see if I can get my hands on, or just you know, either a written analysis that they've done or you know, presentations they've given, just to understand their framework and, and you know how they view the world, right? Because there, there are a lot of investors that I don't like that are like true quote unquote value investors that, you know, I don't necessarily invest the same way they do, but their mental models, their frameworks, they're, they're so brilliant in the way that they approach complex problems. That's what I look for. So, you know, I think of course, right. Like there's, there's strategies out there where you look to see, you know, what are the top performing hedge funds and what are they buying? I don't do any of that. And, And it's really for one main reason, which is, I truly believe that the only way to generate alpha over the long term, at least is to, you know, have one, a differentiated perspective and to be right. Right. And so that can't really happen if you're, you know, following the crowd and doing what everyone else is doing. So I I really try to find my ideas through a first principles framework and, and try to once again, you know, carve out the noise and, and do what I think, you know, to me at least makes sense.
0: Definitely. That seems like a very sane strategy for generating alpha. Uh, On the M side, yeah, I want to talk about the market. I think you had a really good Twitter thread recently kind of on what's happening now and where we are in the business cycle. You know, I I think when I think about this subject, like I keep thinking about March and then periods like 2016 and then, you know, 09 where it's like, if you kind of can get in during the massive drawdowns, you make it a lot easier for yourself. Uh, Of course, like it's impossible to tell when that's coming and like how much cash you should hold for periods like that. Um, any strategies you found useful for figuring out like where we are in the cycle and kind of figuring out what to buy based on that?
1: So, uh, you know, first I would kind of warn, right. That, well, for (laughs) it, comes down to a lot of different things. I think one is forecasting, right. You know, Philip Tetlock wrote super forecasting and I think it's, it's really a, a very prominent and it's like the madness of crowds and the wisdom of crowds. Right what is this saying where it's like, you know, economists have predicted 18 of the past 10 recessions. And so, you know, you, you hear a lot of investors too say that a lot of their, you know, quote unquote losses was really losing out on gains by trying to predict the, where the market was going. Now, you know, I do think that the market can give you clues here and there in terms of, of where it's going. Uh, But, it's hard. It's really hard if you're going to try to play that game. You know, I do look at some structural things. And let me take another step back too. everything's easy in hindsight, right? You know, like it's, it's easy to, you know, look back at a 20, 30 year chart and be like, oh, well, you know, of course, you know, we were running into an overextended market here and, you know, I'm using my Bollinger bands and we're up three standard deviations over our moving average. That, that stuff's easy, of course, you know, to do in hindsight. But, you know, in real time, I think the best thing you can do is just really understand with clarity where you are in the present. So let's let's use an example of like the 10-year, right? So what were rates back in 2000, like 6%, something, something like that. And so at a 6% yield, and let's just take another step back and talk about, you know, the, the early 80s when yields were at like 20%, something nuts like that.
0: Amazing to think of that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Where do you think yields are going to (laughs) go? They're, they're probably going down. Right. So, you know, there, I think there are very, there are certain examples where you can have an understanding of our, this is the present. This is where we are. Does this make sense? And then the key is, I think, to think about expectations and, you know, Taleb says expectations are probability times payoff. Right. So at 6% back in 2000, you know, I would say that your expectation is that yields are gonna go down from there. What is interesting to me beyond belief is that I'm seeing comparisons from some people of like PE ratios in the market from today to 2000, when you had the 10-year at 6% versus today, the 10 years at what? Like 80 basis, 90 basis points, whatever maybe. Sure. That that comparison doesn't make any sense, right? So I would say you have to be very much have a, have a clear understanding of the present, which is, and I can kind of talk about what that thread was. You know, the first thing is this, right? You have a, let's talk about low rates. So 80, I said 80 basis points, 90 basis points in the 10 year. So, and we were talking about DCFs earlier. So, the main part of a DCF, one of the main parts of a DCF is your discount rate, which is going to be highly affected by the 10 year or the 30 year, whatever, you know, government. Um, risk-free uh, rate you're going to use. If you're not using just a 10% cost of capital like I do, right? If you're trying to actually use the discount rate, you know, effective in the market, a lower discount rate is going to just artificially inflate your valuations, right? So that's one. That, that's why, you know, growth would outperform value. And that's really what my entire thread was about is why I think growth will continue to outperform value. So number two, and this, this might get a little wonky, so I'll try to keep it more simple. So there's the notion of the Fed put right and it, initially it was a greenspan put but now there's a fed put where they're really just not going to let companies fail and you know i you could argue that part of the reason why we had such slow growth out of the great financial crisis is that we allowed companies that were dying to stay alive and those companies just kind of trudged along right and so those kind of they dragged down the growth rates but we still have the fed put today right so what does that mean for a large stabilized, you know, a DCF appropriate company, what is the range of their outcomes? What is the distribution of their outcomes? The standard deviation is pretty narrow, right? Like you're you're gonna be within, you know, a couple percent here and there every single year. But then let's talk about a CrowdStrike or a Unity or one of these higher growth companies, right? The distribution of their outcomes is massive, right? Like you're, I'm not gonna throw any percentages, but if you think about a distribution curve, like they're gonna have a lot fatter tails. Than you would a larger incumbent, but what does the Fed put do? You're once again doing what I kind of do with my maximum loss rule, which is you're creating positive skew by cutting off the left tail of these companies in terms of probabilistic outcomes. So you have like this, this inverted, uh, this inverted chart, if you will. So that is going to then increase the value if you would think about just optional value right it's going to increase the value of those companies a lot more than a fed put does for a stable mature company that would be a value company because there's not a lot of standard deviation between their outcomes you're not cutting off a fat tail for those guys so that's another reason why uh growth would probably continue to outperform value and then lastly is this if you look at the average age of a public company back in like the fifties or sixties, right? It was, let's call it 40, 45 years. And so what's the benefit there? If you're Warren Buffett, you can buy a company and over those 45 years, you can just let the cash flows compound on top of each other. And compounding is, is in itself exponential, right? So it's convex in nature. You're getting, really all of the benefits or the, let's say the majority, the higher proportionate share of benefits come at the end of that period. Right now, fast forward to today, the average life cycle, I've seen the varying estimates. I'm not sure why it's so difficult to calculate, but (laughs) let's call it, you know, 12 years just to, or 10 years, right. Just to be a pick around number. If you're cutting off 30 years of compounding for a value investor, they're not getting anywhere near the returns that they used to, right? And then Terry Smith had a really great presentation that I saw, you know, probably a couple months ago where, you know, and this was fascinating to me because I always thought, you know, price paid really matters. Price paid is the determinant of returns and it is in the short term. But in the long term, he showed that the multiple paid on entry is actually almost not insignificant, but relative to the, the impact of the compounding of cash flows to your end returns, the entry multiple really is somewhat insignificant, right? But if you only have 10 years to compound those returns, now your entry price matters a whole lot more, right? And so that's another reason why, you know, value is just gonna continue to struggle, it's gonna be a lot harder. On top of the fact that, you know, and, and this is the same kind of thought process for growth too, but you know, what are you doing for, you know, value-based investment, A traditional value-based investment, right? you're coming up with your own calculation of intrinsic value, right? And then you're comparing that to the market value and you're seeing if there's a spread, if there's a margin of safety. Well, you could be right. You could definitely be right. But the market might not realize it for two, three, four, five years, right? And so then now you only have five years of compounding (laughs) once you get to your actual price target. So there are a lot of things that are working uh, against Uh, value-based investors. But I will say this. I have yet to find any example where the markets, nature, anything like that isn't cyclical. So as much as growth has outperformed over the past 10 years, whatever it may be since the great financial crisis, I think there are pretty good odds there at some point, maybe after 2023, 2024, when the Fed is no longer just suppressing interest rates, at some point
0: value will come back. But for now, I think that growth will continue to outperform. Yep, makes sense. I mean, let's get right to a growth stock. Uh, I know you own, I I own it too, so I'm glad we're gonna be aligned on it. And also where the entry multiple right now perhaps is not the best. Uh, Talking about CrowdStrike, but I I know you've written a very long uh, thesis on this. Everybody should check that out. Uh, But high level, I'd I'd like to hear on CrowdStrike, like why now? And kind of what are the tailwinds this company has and why are they gonna have them going forward? Sure. So the why now you know
1: I, like listen right if you look at crowdstrike in terms of a traditional like enterprise value to sales multiple whatever it may be you know i think they're probably still up there in the top 10 or at least top 15 of of your saas companies right but if you factor in the rule of 40 or if you do a gross profit or a gross margin adjusted or free cash flow adjusted multiple it looks a lot more attractive there but that's really that's really not part of the story to me. So the heart of the matter is this, right? And AI is something that I have been really acutely focused on lately. It's a huge interest area of mine, but the thesis for CrowdStrike is extremely simple. They have now solidified their position as the dominant provider of endpoint and workload security moving forward. And, until something certain happens, and I can talk about it as it relates to AI, until something very certain happens, I don't think that can change. So let's talk about what exactly that means. It's really network effects. So to understand the essence of CrowdStrike and really what is behind the product itself, uh, it, it's called their threat graph, right? Where I, I think I mentioned it before. Their threat graph is a data lake where they take and this is something they've done differently than uh, any other uh, competitor before them, at least, where they take the data points from all of their customers. They don't silo their customers and their, their data like old legacy providers used to do. They take the data points from all of their customers, feed it into this threat graph, and that threat graph utilizes machine learning to process data points real time and work out what indicators of compromise or indicators of attack may be, right? So they're looking at certain behaviors that could be occurring uh, within the data points provided to them that could compromise the security of an endpoint or a workload. So everything is happening one real time, and two, it's all the data points from all the customers together. So if one customer gets attacked, right, that data gets fed into the threat graph and then The threat graph will learn, oh, wow, this is an attack. Then all other customers and all their endpoints can be protected now just because of that one data point. That's really powerful. But now what does that mean? Why am I saying then that they have solidified themselves as the leader? Well, AI comes down to this. The quality of the algorithm for a machine learning program or anything really artificial intelligence today is simply directly related to the quantity of data fed into the program or the quantity of the training data, right? So what does that mean? To me, it means that the first mover in an industry that utilizes AI that can accumulate the most amount of data to feed into their artificial intelligence program, that first mover is going to have an insurmountable advantage because they're going to have a better product. So if you think about it, the more data, the better the quality right? The better the quality, the more customers that you're going to get, especially when it comes to security, you want to have the best protection. The more customers you get, the more data you're going to have. The more data you're going to have, the better the algorithm quality. So that creates a network effect. So that's the thesis, right? And then how are you seeing this play out? Well, one, if you look at CrowdStrike and the last uh, report that I saw that I could, you know, actually was verifiable in terms of market share was from 20... The final 2019 report, they doubled their market share. Meanwhile, the top three legacy incumbents, they all lost market share. So that was one data point. And now another data point is they are one of the very few companies that have actually continued to accelerate their revenue growth and not not fall off whatsoever during the pandemic. The last three quarters, they've grown, I think I'm right, like 85% year over year, 84% year over year, and then 86% year over year no fall off whatsoever. I mean that's remarkable, right? And then same thing with their customer growth, you know, of course they're starting to get into larger numbers. I think they have 8400 customers now, but they have like a 93% CAGR of their customers over the past 3 years. So I think that thesis is really playing out where you have this artificial intelligence engine that is get, that is really allowing them to have the best product that is allowing them to get more customers to have more data to have a better product. And now this is a staggering stat, right? So when I first started covering uh, CrowdStrike back in like the summer, right? They were producing or they were feeding into their uh, algorithm one trillion, uh, one trillion uh, high fidelity signals from the endpoints of their customers per week. That's a lot, right? One trillion signals. In Q2 2021, so that would be Q, Q2 2020 technically, right? After that quarter reported... They announced that they were processing 3 trillion high fidelity signals per week. Holy crap. I mean, over a year, right? You went from 1 to 3 trillion. One quarter later, they're at 4 trillion signals per week. So you're seeing this exponential growth in the amount of signals that they're processing, which once again, I think really confirms the signal. So that's that's the thesis. And I'm more than happy to get more into the details of the company. but. I think just knowing that fact alone, thinking about you know the TAM, how it's just going to keep expanding, um, and then really two main drivers, which I think are the the big thematic drivers of the company. You know, I'm more than happy to talk more about them, but to me, just CrowdStrike is my highest conviction name.
0: Yeah, definitely a good place to be when the problem you're solving is becoming a bigger, bigger problem, and there are more data points on that problem. Yep. I, I think it, you know, looking at the third quarter uh, call, I was I was super impressed with all the customer wins they've had. Specifically, the the target one, and there was another they mentioned where it's like they beat out like Symantec, McAfee, yep. Trend Micro, and like Sentinel One, and apparently it was easier to deploy and, and can do a, a ton more. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: like other than the AI factor, like is there anything you think specifically kind of makes CrowdStrike um, a, a have a competitive moat and kind of be the the chosen solution for more and more companies? So,
1: yes, you know, so I think you know one thing that's important is that they do price uh, on a modular basis, right? So if you taught, so they're pricing modular, which is why I kind of was talking about before how many customers are using four plus, five plus, six plus modules. And the fact that every module sold after the first is basically pure margin. So you see a really, you see an ability to scale, but what's what's the secret, right? So I mentioned the threat graph and then you also have to think about the fact that it's a very, it's just one light, uh, light agent that they install on the endpoints, right? So there's no real disruption to the customer activities at all. They don't even know it's really running. It's just happening behind the scenes. But what it allows is one, the real-time updates from the threat graph, but also an easy deployment of the solution out to customers. So if there's a new addition, a new module, um, I think the new one that they were just talking about was called Falcon Recon, which is uh, looking into like the dark web, right? It is easy for them to roll it out, and why is that? Is because they have the threat graph with all the data already sitting right there. So all of their modules are just getting updated all the time. Uh, so that's one, and you know, I think that within that business model, then you're, you can then talk about you know the actual financials. Right? They're already at, they're already generating thirty-three percent free cash flow margins uh, and seventy-six percent gross margins because of that fact that they're able to roll out these modules really quickly uh and without any scale so the target example what was uh, so target it was like a was it one hundred eighty thousand employees or, so, yeah. or some staggering number like that yep uh where you know they rolled it out over um oh god what was the number it was
0: like three days to deploy it was
1: bit. something it was something yeah. so mind-boggling that even george kurtz the ceo and you mentioned mcafee who, he used to be the cto there uh at mcafee after they had McAfee acquired his first startup called Foundstone. Uh, He then had like some position at McAfee, then became their global CTO, right? So, uh, you know, and he's just kicking their butt all over the place when it comes to, you know, next generation, antivirus, everything like that that McAfee was known for. But, you know, when he was talking about it, like you could almost hear the, the amazement in his voice where he was just like, yeah, we were able to pull this off. (laughs) <laughs> and it's remarkable, and so that's another you know huge advantage is the frictionless deployment. You know the fact that they are cloud native, where you have other incumbents like FireEye or Semantics completely just like getting out of the market. You know they they have thousands of customers, and once they merged with Broad or once they were acquired by Broadcom, it was just it's been a mess for them. And, and so you see all those customers really going to CrowdStrike. You see all these legacy providers that were, you know, they're built for on-prem, you know, they have multiple modules, but an agent for each module. So it's a bulkier solution. They can't roll out, you know, these uh, holistic solutions as fast as CrowdStrike can. So you have all of these different data points that are really, you know, touching on that. CrowdStrike is going to keep winning in the marketplace. And they're also, they're not stopping, right? So of course, like if you look at expense margins, uh, as you're scaling R&D, as an example, right. will continue to be a smaller portion of revenue, even if you're still uh, incorporating or or deploying the same amount of dollars. But these guys are still working on um, producing more modules. So when I started covering them in in the summer, they had 11 modules. They now have 16 and I was trying to do some digging uh, with one of their sales reps and you know, they're working on more modules behind the scenes and a lot of it is related to zero trust which is uh, which is really founded in the, uh, the acquisition that they just made. They acquired Preempt Security for $96 million. Um, they closed it after Q3 or Q2, um, um, Q2, I think it was. Uh, and so, you know, that zero trust paradigm is, I think, critical to the future of, of cybersecurity. And so they're just very, once again, I talked about, you know, being able to generate Alpha. It's really important for an investor to have a very clear understanding of the present. I think that CrowdStrike does the same thing, but but they're also able to really see the future, right? So knowing that uh, zero trust is really a foundational part of the new—it's uh, called a like secure access service edge uh, paradigm for cybersecurity—and that they acquire a company that then enables them to scale up really quickly. Um, and listen, like these guys, I I think they have like a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet, like no debt. If you, if you pay $86 million in cash and your stock has gone up like a hundred some odd, 200% in a year and you pay $10 million in stock for the company, like that, that's a great way to allocate capital. And you know, it's another example of their management team really executing well.
0: Yeah, you, you actually pre-anticipated my next two questions because I was going to ask you first about preempt and then about other sure. modules that might be coming online. Awesome to hear about the scuttlebutt and like talking to sales reps on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so w- what exactly is Zero Trust and why is it important? And then as a follow-on, like, how, what does the preempt acquisition have to do with all of that?
1: Sure, so Zero Trust is essentially your the the network or the the system is always requiring verification of the users that are in a network. So before it was, you know, once you're in a network, you're good. Good to go, like no problem. You know, it's, it's easy, right, to, for a, for a mal actor to then utilize uh, user credentials to get into a network that way. Not anymore with zero trust, right? Now if you're inside or outside the network, you need constant verification of the system. So that's critically important, especially as you're moving workloads to uh, containerized workloads, right? So it's easier to deploy applications, et cetera, into the cloud. And now we're moving into edge computing. And so zero trust is going to be continuously more and more important. So uh, I can relate it to an example of one of their partners, who's another excellent, uh, amazing cybersecurity company, uh, Okta. Okta is a leader in uh, identity and access management. And so that's really a core pillar of IAM uh, is zero trust. And so I think that what, you know, CrowdStrike doing this and having Preempt, not only one, is it going to allow them to provide a more holistic offering to their current customers, right? And create more modules to have more revenue and better margins. Uh, But it also makes them a better partner. You know, someone like Okta, who's also a customer of uh, CrowdStrike's actually, uh, so it has a lot of different, you know, functions there. And it's a great example of uh, horizontal integration, you know, within the cybersecurity space, uh, they're going to continue to become a, I think, more horizontal player, provide more holistic uh, offerings to their customers. And of course, because of that, they're going to be creating more modules. And so on the financial side, it's also going to be highly beneficial.
0: Yeah, that was super interesting to hear that Okto is a customer on the last call in addition to the partnership. Yeah. And yeah. it's like they're on the AWS marketplace. Amazon's yep. a partner. Uh, Ernst and Young is now like selling the company. Uh, but I guess I, I do want to kind of ho- hone in on the Okta partnership because Okta is another holding of mine. And it would seem that like there are maybe components <clears throat> of the CrowdStrike product and the Octa product that are, that are similar. I wouldn't call them competitors, but I'm wondering like, have you done any work at Octa, and like, what do you think of this partnership?
1: Sure, uh, um, the work on Octa I've done is a little bit higher level. You know, I did do a, a thread on Octa months ago, but you know, Okta, I, I, am, I am bullish on. And let's talk about the first reason why, and that's Todd McKinnon. You know, I think uh, he is a, he's a brilliant, I think he's a level five leader. You know, I think he's a brilliant guy that, that really, once again, identified a pain point in cybersecurity and has developed the best solution for identity and access management. And I think that IAM is like the second fastest growing segment of cybersecurity as well. So they have, you know, kind of natural tailwinds behind it. And, you know, they are the leader. You know, I think was it ping identity is their maybe main competitor. But when you look at the reviews and the customer reviews and because I, I like doing this a lot, it's just kind of reading what people and, and users say about these products, because as someone that's not running an organization, you know, it's harder for me to actually use the products myself. But I think that's really important to understand the company. So I'm really looking into a lot of the reviews and what people are saying about it, what what are the pain points or the pros and cons, et cetera. And when you see these golden reviews for Okta versus, you know, issues for their competitors, I think that's extremely bullish for the name. Uh, and then once again, you know, partnering with CrowdStrike, right? And so this is where the partnership's interesting. Like they're, they're not competitors, right? What is beneficial for Okta in this partnership is for all of CrowdStrike's partners, or for all of CrowdStrike's customers, rather, that are also Okta customers, Okta is, ha- is getting access to all of those data points that are fed into the threat graph. And that just enables Okta to provide a better product and solution themselves. So the partnership between the two is really highly, highly synergistic, right? And, you know, CrowdStrike does the same thing with Zscaler, for instance. Now, Zscaler is a name that I'm a little bit more hesitant about because I think that uh, Cloudflare is, it, Cloudflare might win in that space. Um, in terms of secure web gateways, uh, just network protection. But when it comes to identity and access management, I think that Okta is far and away the leader and it's a fast growing space with a big TAM, uh, great leadership team and and a great product. So, you know, I, I like Okta a lot.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's the app for work I, I use the most and login, death and taxes. You're going to do those three things. I like to say, That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. I want, I want to close by talking about your AI um, primer. I mean, you had a great write up on this. Um, you mentioned a bit on CrowdStrike, how AI is kind of driving their core product. Yep. Um, what are some of the other investable areas that are going to benefit from AI? So let's talk about the big one for me and, and maybe it's obvious.
1: I, I don't know but it really comes down to semiconductors, right? So let me start with this. Like this is a crazy stat that I came across when I was building out the part one of my primer. And it was relating the supercomputer back in 1956 uh, when the Dartmouth conference uh, took place, which is really when AI really became a thing, right? Uh, It was called the IBM 7090. The IBM 7090 could perform 200,000 computations per second, which is a lot, right? And then you fast forward to 2018, and the best supercomputer in the world was called Summit. Summit could process 200 quadrillion <laughs> same computations per second. Now, it's hard for humans to really conceptualize big numbers like that, so uh, let me put it this way What would take Summit one second to process would take the IBM 7090 something like 32,000 years to do that is just it's mind-boggling to think about and so i can't help but laugh right when when thinking about just the progress that ai has come under uh just over those over that time period and what's in, what's even more interesting right is that up until like 2012 or 2014 there was really the most of that time was what they called the AI winter when there wasn't really too much progress on the AI side. And the issue is this is because, and I mentioned it before, artificial intelligence requires an intense, an intense amount of computer processing power. So, and this is going to get into my main play on AI, computer processing power is, is really driven by semiconductors, right? Semiconductors drive every single electrical component in the world, right? So up until 2012, artificial intelligence programs and, and machines were utilizing CPUs to uh, to process these algorithms. Now, CPUs are great for, you know, complex tasks. Um, you know, it's, it's what our computers, right, run on where we're doing a bunch of different things at once. But really what allowed AI to start taking off and accelerate was the fact that, you know, uh, scientists realized that if you have a cpu a core cpu to run the program but around it you had these gpus or graphic processing units to do the same calculations over and over again which is what gpus do so you know you can think about gpus as something with like gaming right where they're doing the same calculation over and over again so if you're thinking about layers of a screen like they're 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 producing the same layers over and over again. That's what GPUs do, and so they're really good at doing the same thing over and over again. And that's what really artificial intelligence is, especially when you think about neural networks. You know, neural networks. If you think about how the brain works, right? So the brain in um, our brain is made up of you know millions or billions of neurons, right? A neuron. What ha- what happens at a very high level is an electrical charge comes into the neuron and it fills up to a certain benchmark. Once that benchmark is hit, then that electrical charge goes out of the neuron into the next neuron, right? And so um, neural networks, it's a very similar type of concept where uh, you're basically using a similar construct to uh, teach a machine, right, for machine learning. So the biggest hurdle, right, for artificial intelligence progress, isn't the data anymore. The data problem was really solved once we got the internet and the social media apps and mobile phones and now, you know, we're producing, these stats are crazy to me too. You know, I think we produced, you know, more data in the past like two or three years than we had in the past, say like 50 years combined. Um, you know, 90% of all the data ever created happened in the past two years. And then I, I forget what the stat is like moving forward, but it's, it's really mind numbing. Right. So we solved the data problem. The other problem is the computing processing problem. And so up until, uh, like I said, 2012, we were using CPUs, now we're using GPUs, but now we're at a point where for semiconductors, we're running into an issue when it comes to just pure physics, when it comes to Moore's law. So for people that aren't familiar with Moore's law, Moore's law states that essentially from anywhere from like 12 to 18 or 12 to 24 months, the number of transistors that you can fit on a chip of the same size doubles, right? So if you think about it, you're basically getting a doubling of computer processing power for free every say two years, right? So, if you think about the development of semiconductors, and I'm still learning about the space, so I'm not going to be, I think, as knowledgeable as I want to about it. But you think about the progress of semiconductors, right? You know, we're now at the, the fastest semiconductors, or the smallest, rather, um, and fastest, is five nanometers, right? Five nanometer technology developed by, uh, technically, well, man- manufactured by Taiwan Semi and Samsung, uh, up until 10, ten nanometers. Um, you know, we were, I think, okay, in terms of the technology that we were using. So if you want, I'll get into like some tangible companies. Is that more helpful than me just rambling on about send me oh, no, no, This is
0: great, man. I definitely want to go to tangible companies too. So yeah, feel free to mix that in as well. All right, so let me
1: do tangible companies cause it'll be a lot easier. And, try to keep it short but i've just been so fascinated by everything i've been learning about semiconductors because you know it's gavin baker said he may have taken a quote from somebody else but semiconductors are literally the closest thing that we have to magic in this world and when i learn more about it it is so true so listen to this there's one company in the world that can produce photolithography machines right photo and that's asml they're another one's based company Photolithography is the process of basically etching onto uh, wafers of silicone the, let's call it the structure of the semiconductor, okay? Of of where the transistors are going to go. So if you think about uh, what we talk about nanometers, nanometers are really essentially the space between each uh, transistor. So thinking about Moore's Law, thinking about what uh, nanometers are, at 10 nanometers, right? You know, you have just 10 nanometers between every single transistor. Now we're at five, right? So this is, this is stuff is mind blowing. So for ASML, what they do is they create the, like I said, the actual etchings on the silicone. So what do they use to do that? The process of photolithography is using actual light to do so, right? Photolithography kind of makes sense. It's using light to make these etchings on the silicon, but there's an issue. The wavelength of an ultraviolet, ultra of ultraviolet light, is 193 nanometers, right? But well, we we're making we're making 10 nanometer chips. Well, how is that possible? Now let me let me also say this too. One nanometer on silicon is about two to three atoms, right? So we're right now making chips where transistors are separated by fifteen atoms. You can't go much smaller than that. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely nuts. But so up to ten nanometers, they're using one hundred ninety-three nanometer wavelengths, right? How are they doing that? Like that's really freaking hard. So you know, one, they're using like scopes basically to you know narrow down the wavelengths and and really sharpen. Uh, what they 're doing in terms of on top of the mass so they 're na- narrowing down the the actual size of the wavelength you know there was there 's um, there's immersion photolithography which is shooting the wavelengths through light, uh, which also did the same exact thing, but up until ten nanometers they couldn 't do it anymore there was nothing else to do so these guys they created what 's called <laughs> extreme ultraviolet light euV now, this is where it gets actually mind-blowing. And I want to share this because, you know, I learned about this actually just the other day. And to me, like, I, I, was, I said out loud, like, like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> a couple different times. So what's happening is the way that um, EUV is created is you're taking molten tin and you're taking droplets of molten tin. And at the same time, you're shooting a laser beam of CO2 against that molten tin and that creates plasma, which emits um, this, you know, um, this extreme ultraviolet light, right? But the problem is, is that the extreme ultraviolet light then has to be bounced off of in this machine eleven different uh, mirrors. Mirrors, up until ASML with this uh, with this machine, had to invent new mirrors. Up until that point, would have completely consumed the ultraviolet light and so there wouldn't have been any it wouldn't have bounced around so they created and they designed new mirrors that would allow the light to actually bounce off of it but even when it's bouncing off of it when it hits the actual chip it still needs to be the light needs to be strong enough to actually make the etching so how many droplets or how many pulses of the droplets with the laser is required to make an etching on this chip for the light to actually have an impact. It turns out that it's 50,000 pulses per second needs to happen in order for the light to be strong enough when it hits the chip. So 50,000 times you're having molten droplets and a laser pulse at the same time and have to hit each other 50,000 times a second. It's, it's, it's absolutely nuts. And they're the only company in the world that can do it, right? So that's one company that I think that you, you have to be yeah. involved with, right? It sounds
0: like a massive competitive moat,
1: right? <laughs> it's a huge competitive moat. And even you know, when we get to like two or three nanometers you know, after the end of this decade, they're still gonna be involved you know, at some point. E- even if there's a different company that finds the technology, just because of all like the billions of dollars of you know, R&D they've put into the process. So ASML is a big one. Now let's go to the next part of the value chain. The great thing about semis is that there's margin to be had at every part of the value chain. So uh, Taiwan Semiconductor has actually passed Intel as you know, like the, the primary uh, manufacturer of, of of chips of semiconductors, right? So uh, ASML is one of the many vendors to Taiwan Semi. Taiwan Semi for the first time beat Intel to the next node, which is you know the the actual system or the structure rather of the nanometers they beat intel from i think it was from 10 to 7 right and then taiwan semi was actually also able to go from 7 to 5 along with samsung meanwhile intel is still stuck at 10 now it's pretty sad because intel is like one of the best technology companies ever created but they're stuck right and now i don't think that they can keep up again but what's the great thing about taiwan semi so, uh, Morris Chang, who started Taiwan Semi, I think he was at Texas Instruments before, who's was like one of the original um, semiconductor companies. You know, he he went you know, back home to Taiwan and he, he built this great company. He realized that the companies, which were, you know, back in the day, they did everything from manufacturing, uh, design, uh, to producing the actual products themselves. He realized that there was a huge disadvantage these companies had from not being able to really produce um, and manufacture effectively. So they became a pure manufacturer. And so now, you know, Taiwan Semi, they're, they're the company that provides the semiconductors for, you know, all of the major companies around the world. So Taiwan Semi is another big one that I think you would really want to consider or look into um, uh, from at least the manufacturing side. Uh, And then if you want to just talk about the pure, uh, the pure chip players that you think about in the marketplace, it would be NVIDIA and then uh, AMD. So NVIDIA is the GPU leader. They are leading in terms of the data center. Their data center business is now like $4 billion uh, and, and growing rapidly. And data centers are gonna be required and, and they're gonna uh, experience a ton of growth, especially with IoT, uh, edge computing, etc. cetera. Uh, NVIDIA is the name that you're gonna want. And then another theme that I'm interested in is gaming and AMD is the leader of GPUs for the gaming space. So that's another way you can play it. You know. Um, and then I think that you wanted to also maybe talk about like tertiary and direct, um, applications of AI.
0: Definitely. Yeah. If if you have a couple of those, that'd be great too. I mean, the, the kind of supply chain components you mentioned, like I I had not heard of ASML and knew very little about, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. So yeah, let's talk more about kind of tertiary, ancillary, kind of anywhere you want to go.
1: Yeah. I, I could keep going about, you know, these companies, I, what I love and why, you know, the investing in the public markets is my passion. What I love to do, I, you know, I don't have a boss. I just, I grind every day. It's because I love it. I truly love it to my core. It's my passion. It's because I get to learn something new every single day. And in 50 years when I'm, you know, when I'm pretty experienced, uh, when I know a few things more than I do today, I'm still going to be learning a ton every single day. So that's, that's my favorite part about the markets, right? So uh, if you want to think about like other direct applications of AI. You know, another way to play it would be the uh, the software designers, right? Of uh, uh, for artificial intelligence programs, there are two of them: there are Cadence Design Systems and Synopsys. I actually, i um, I have a buy order waiting to go into Cadence Design as soon as it gets to one twenty seven point five. I think we're like twenty cents away from there. Uh, so those are like the two major players in that space. So that's another way that you can play it. Uh, I spoke about the, the physical constraints of, of semiconductors and the fact that Moore's law is really creating an issue uh, and how ASML you know, solved a big part of the problem. Well, LAM research uh, took another approach too where they're actually starting to stack chips on top of each other. They're, they're creating like 3D chips, if you will. So we're going vertical instead of horizontal with these chips. So LAM research is another way to play it. Uh, and maybe let me just close with this, right? If you want to think about tertiary players, I mentioned, you know, I talked about the CrowdStrike uh, effect, right, with their AI. That's the same way that you want to think about it for other players in the market, I think. You want to find the player in an industry or a submarket that is the first mover to use AI that is somehow able to, through network effects, get the most amount of data into their algorithm to then uh, have the best algorithm. Now, that is going to work, and this is my... Uh, you know, One of my big points I'm looking for with CrowdStrike, that's going to work up until the algorithm can actually be a differentiator when it comes to AI. So right now it's a data game, but at some point, once our computer processing power is great enough, the algorithm itself is going to be able to be a differentiator. So right now... Uh, I might, I might boggle this, but I think open AI, the last round, the most amount of parameters that they could process was like 150 billion parameters. Um, Think of a parameter as like an input. Uh, They expect, you know, scientists expect us to be able to get to 1 trillion parameters, right? So that's going to require an intense amount of computer processing power. And at that point there should be able to have, you know, more of the unsupervised learning components to this where AI Quality can really be related to the the actual writing of the program itself, so that, that's something to look for, right? I would say that I'll, I'll close on this. When it comes to the bull case for semis, I think people that have invested in the space, uh, you know, historically, ha- they've realized the cyclical nature of the industry, right? And it's it's typical for you know most other you know traditional industries where you have. Uh, high profit margins, so you have a lot of investment that come into the space with that which then reduce returns and compress margins, so then you have lower supply, which, et cetera, on repeat, right? But here's the difference now. I think we have a structural imbalance in terms of supply and demand. What do I mean by that? On the supply side, we have limited supply because of the physics constraints that we're running into and, and the Moore's Law slowing down. So we're gonna naturally, just not be able to produce as many chips with the same acceleration or growth of processing power. So there's going to be a a physical constraint there, right, on the supply side. On the demand side, you have artificial intelligence, you have the internet of things, you have 5G technology, you you name it, right? Uh, so you have all of these, you know, the, we're gonna have the proliferation of endpoints of, of devices that they're, these are all gonna require semiconductors. So you have this massive boom in demand that's coming down the pike. So I think you're gonna have naturally this this supply and demand imbalance where it's gonna be just really accretive for the industry moving forward. Uh, and I, maybe I'll close on like one last thing. Sorry, uh, I didn't mention Micron uh, because you know. Uh, the GPUs and the CPUs, these guys, they're they're actually processing, um, they're processing uh, workloads, right? But the other side of semis is memory, and I think Micron is going to be really the leader when it comes to memory uh, because they have really the best uh, the best product out there on the market. And I was reading about their, it was like the the cost to produce per chip went from like six to three dollars over the past couple of years, and so now you have you have a lower cost. But you also have, once again, the supply and demand imbalance where all all of these data points that are being generated, you're going to have to remember it somehow, right? The computer has to remember it. Micron's your solution there, right? So that's my bit on AI and semiconductors. I'm so excited about the space. Uh, I'm long a bunch of those names. um, And those are names that I'm pretty confident are going higher in the long term.
0: Yeah, that was fantastic. I'm excited to add all of those to my watch list. And as you said, like nothing gets me more excited than kind of doing the research digging in on new names. So definitely yeah. a lot to look forward to. I mean, hearing you say that too, it makes me think like, you know, you have all these kind of new needs in terms of like a massive amount of parameters, which is going to require more compute, more containers. And then to go full circle, you know, you need security on all of those containers and kind of all that compute. So CrowdStrike definitely also seems like it'd be a beneficiary there as well. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I, I think um, there's a lot to kind of think about. Uh, I want to end with some rapid fire questions, and I'll let you go. So, um, three things I want to know: your favorite on uh, podcast, Twitter feed, and book, and they could be non-investing or they could be investing.
1: Okay, so let's go with podcast. <clears throat> I'll give you three besides this one. <laughs> um, uh, Invest like the best uh, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy is is pure brilliance. Uh, Capital Allocators with Ted Sites uh, is, is one of my absolute favorites. I'm, I'm very fortunate enough to have a pretty close relationship with Ted, actually. And he's just a great person, a, a brilliant guy. Uh, I couldn't say enough good things about him in the show. Uh, and then uh, the Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish is also uh, you know, best in class. I mean, Shane... I've learned, you know, one of the main things I try to focus on is, you know, mental models and really developing the lattice work that, you know, Munger and he talks about, um, you know, Shane Parrish, I've learned so much from him and, and the knowledge project is fantastic. So that's the podcast side. And then you said uh, books. Books. And yeah, we can
0: close with Twitter feed. Oh, books. All right, so, yeah. so
1: books, uh, I've become an avid reader, thank God. Uh, I love reading. It's, I would do it all day if I could, right, and just not be productive. But um, the book that I'm reading currently is called Finite and Infinite Games uh, by James Karse. Uh Definitely one of my favorites I've ever read. You know, it's, the, it's very simple. It actually opens like you know there, there are at least two types of games, finite and infinite games. And so if you think about um, the real application, right, I think it's important to always understand the game you're playing, right, and play the cards that you're dealt. So there are two types of games in the world. There are finite games, which are um, defined as known players, uh, known rules and agreed upon rules and an agreed upon objective, right? And there's a final conclusion to the game where the players agree on who won, right? Based off of those rules. Then there's an infinite game where there are known and unknown players. There are no fixed rules. And actually the rules are interchangeable so that the game can uh, perpetuate. And then three is exactly that. There is no ending to the game the game just keeps on going and, and the goal is to, is to stay in play, right? And so when I got to the end of the book, I realized I was wrong, but I did think about uh, investing as an infinite game because you really just want to stay in play, right? So that, that's a really good one I've read. I think, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, that's had a huge impact on uh, my frameworks and the way that I view the world. Uh, so that was a great one. You know, Thinking in Bets, uh, Fooled by Randomness, a lot of those books in terms of just how to think, uh, really are some of my favorites and then Twitter, Twitter feeds. Oh, wow. Um, there are a lot of really good accounts out there. You have to go searching for them. Um, you know, of course we have a lot of, a lot of great people on Twitter that I've, that I've gotten to know, like Beth Kindig, She does a great job. Um, God, I, I mean, there's so many of them to feel bad for losing some out. Like investment talk was one of the first guys that really supported me and he does a lot of good stuff. Uh, Brian Feraldi, I think, posts a lot of good stuff for new investors. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. You know, it'd be hard to really just pinpoint any specifically. Uh and then, you know, of course, like I'm a big fan of guys like Simon Sinek, you know, he's great. Uh, you know, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, of course, you know, following all stuff on invest like the best. Uh, and then there are a lot a lot of guys that aren't really followed as closely, you know. Um uh I've I've i followed one guy recently. Uh I think his handle is like fool all the time or like he his name's mule on uh on on twitter and he's a really good analyst and i've actually learned a lot from him uh so you know you got if you dig deep you can find a lot of good accounts out there uh so that'd be my long-winded yeah, no, answer to your, your uh quick fire questions
0: yeah twitter i, I felt the same way i mean i have been following national cinema media kind of taking like the contrarian approach on movie theaters and movie advertising um, and someone replied to my tweet, this guy, junk bond investor, who clearly has like a, a huge kind of history and track record of investing like all across the capital stack and debt, and just wrote this like amazing thesis on like um, the term loan for National Cinemedia. And it was like, I got all this free research just for putting stuff out there. So you put it out, you get it back. It's amazing. Well, that's
1: the best part of Twitter, right? Like there's no platform like it. So, you know, what's amazing for me, right? Is I started on Twitter just in June. I was posting some ideas. And my user base has grown to like, I don't know, almost at like 20,000 or something like that. And like, that's cool and all, but it's really the people I've met that has been just so incredible and the relationships I've been able to develop, you know, part of it maybe is the post COVID world. I don't know, but you know, it really is. It's amazing to have developed the relationships that I've found on Twitter. And I think it's the only platform where you could do that. Awesome.
0: Completely agree. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, where can people find you if they want to check out more of your stuff?
1: Sure. So Twitter uh, at sifle capital. Cyflecapital.com uh, is my new website where I'll be putting up all my blog posts uh, or newsletters, if you will. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Sipel, nice and easy. Uh, and you know, one thing I'd say to everybody is, and I you know say this on all the podcasts I'm on, is if you're a young investor, you know, or if you just have any general questions, right, you know, please feel free to reach out because you know I've taken a very differentiated path to the public markets. Uh, and I don't think I'd be able to be where I am today without certain people that have helped me along the way. Uh, you know, of course it's been a result of my networking and, and just, you know, I've, I've realized how hard it is. Right. And so I want to make it as easy as possible for others. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions or advice, or if I can help you out. In any way. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. This was great. I had a lot of fun
0: thanks for listening to hear more episodes of stock talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations market commentary and more visit postcoronastocks.com